Okay, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, this is the start of uh, afternoon session. Uh, the first uh, speaker in this session is the Professor Wolfgang Neidl from University of Hanover. He'll be talking about uh, multimedia knowledge management from social media point of view. Okay. I'll do that partially. Uh, and uh, as a general theme for my talk, I want to address a general question which is relevant, uh, whether we search for multimedia or for other data. So can I ask for it? And the motivation is uh, uh, in the last 10 years, uh, people have become accustomed to searching uh, using this small little search box which says Google on top, right? And this is easy, right, isn't it? Um, but if you think about it more, um, it is, in a sense, quite limited, and it becomes even more limited if you go from uh, data which are easily searchable using Google to other data. And I will look at this question um, um, as the guiding theme of my talk, and I will highlight three different uh, scenarios which we have been investigating and where we did some research uh, to uh, tell you more about it. So I will um, look at um, scenarios which have all in common that we search for something, but not really just for documents. And uh, you will see this is the case for uh, scenarios where you search your personal collection, as you might imagine. Um, it is also the case if you want to search for information which has some kind of structure in it. And I will motivate why um, just going back to databases is obviously no solution. And I also tell you a little bit about uh, um, using tags which have been already um, suggested in, I think, the second talk as one good um, input for finding what you need, and I look specifically at music recommendation search. So I will just highlight these things. Obviously, the length of the talk doesn't give me any uh, uh, option to go into detail, but I give uh, you the references, and if you have any further questions, I would be happy to talk about it in a break or send you some additional papers on it. So I'll start with this, with this personal collection with a really old article which was written now 60 years ago um, on a nice uh, device which was called Memex by Vannevar Bush, who said, okay, I'd like to have something which really stores everything I ever want to store. Um, I want to, it to be kind of have an infinite storage capability. So in these times, this meant 5,000 pages of materials a day. Right? Uh, nowadays, it's much more, but again, uh, this uh, basically it should be limitless and also it should work quickly, obviously, and it should be more sophisticated in a sense than what we have with Google today, right? You see these annotations, links between documents, trails, right? That sounds quite familiar if you come from the semantic web context, yet if you search, you cannot use any of it, right? So, I mean, 60 years ago it was difficult to implement this. Uh, nowadays we still... Uh, have to put in some effort um, to, to implement it, but I think we are a little bit better off than 60 years ago. 
obviously also with storage capability, right? We have these nice devices. You maybe know Gordon Bell uh, with his private investigation and research project on the one terabyte life. If you think about it, one terabyte gives you a lot of storage uh, if you put everything you have uh, each day uh, on such a disk. Let's forget about the video for now. Then one terabyte is basically enough if you live 65 uh, years plus. Uh, if you obviously add video, you have to add some more disks. But uh, again, this is not really the problem. Right? I wish I could read a book these days, every 10 days. Uh, that was uh, when I was a little bit younger. But everything else, I mean, the emails are probably not enough in this list. 100 email messages would be nice to have. Anyway, so, so if we have these personal collections, obviously we want, 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 what we want to do is not just have documents, but that's what we have, right? If you look at your laptop, it has enough storage capacity for all of this stuff. What does it do? Very simply, it just puts it in, in directories. Um, um, and then you have lots of documents in lots of directories. Instead, what we really want to do is have uh, kind of all these type typed objects. Uh, I have information about persons, events, topics. I have obviously documents which, however, are linked to these uh, different uh, objects. Right? I have websites, images, whatever. And I do not only have my own laptop. I have also the laptops of my colleagues. So maybe we are connected through the wireless here, but on a very shallow level. What we would like to have is to be connected on a higher level so that actually if I search for something, I can search also through collections of my colleagues in a project uh, of some friends. And that should be seamless, right? So this is uh, one aspect of social, social search. I, I do not want to just look in one specific place, but rather in my social networks. And interestingly enough, all these social networks nowadays uh, still are limited in a sense, right? I mean, I can, by LinkedIn, I don't know how many contacts I have. I don't do it actively, but I say yes every time somebody calls me to connect to his network. Okay, then I'm connected, so what, right? I'm not actually sure what to do is it, right? I'm connected. This is nice, but uh, still limited, right? Okay, so, uh, so, so that um, I, I think uh, I forgot to mention one thing, uh, that, that this is uh, the introductory slide of the Nepomuk project, which is Social Semantic Desktop. It's now in its third year. Uh, we'll finish in the end of uh, this year, right? So hopefully we have uh, some really, really nice software and infrastructure uh, to download for all of you before it finishes, right? Otherwise, we have a problem with our reviews. Um, so, but this is clearly one, one issue where we want to go beyond, beyond uh, pure um, simple search for documents, right? We want to find all these typed objects and we want to do that in a more uh, meaningful way, also search in a more meaningful way. So what does that mean? If you look at, at, at what we have here, I mean, this is kind of a semantic network now. You have these emails, documents, persons, whatever, with all these different uh, attributes. Um, you come from the semantic web context, then imagine these are just classes, and then you have these attributes. Now, RDF is really nice. Everybody can define some additional piece of the ontology. You put it all together, it kind of fits more or less. Uh, let's assume for the moment that the classes are basically overlapping to not to complicate it further. 
but still, if you look at then the attributes, you will find out that actually um, some people, some uh, colleagues describe persons by first name and last name or surname. Some others just have name attribute there, right? So, I mean, RDF is really flexible, allows all these things. You put it together, you get something like this. It looks consistent, but it is not really, right? You have all these different attributes for the same class. Um, now, fine, if you store it, that's, that's easy. You store it in our RDF database, and you can do it without, um, without any problems. Uh, it allows you to easily extend the schema. Now, the problem obviously comes when you want to query for it, right? If you don't know how it is stored, then, then, then it's difficult to query. I have a colleague from the medical university. They have to store everything, archive everything, so they put all these great images in their database. Uh, it's archived, uh, so the, the law is followed. Uh, it's a, basically a write-only database. Right? They put everything in it, and then it's difficult to get out what you want, but it's not the issue here. Of course, on my desktop, I want to get out what I store, right? Um, so how could I search for it if I don't know exactly how it is stored, right? Um, and obviously, I mean, this was a small schema. This is a big schema. This is a, a slide from an introductory speech from somebody else. Uh, if you have a schema like this, right, I mean, you have no chance in using ever this structural information. So, so it's kind of strange. The more structural information you have, the less you are able to use it, right? And then if you store it in some meaningful way, we all, most of us, I think, did the database course. Yeah, you have this normalization, first, second, third, whatever. Uh, so it's stored. Basically, it breaks everything in bits and pieces, right? Um, now, if you want to query it, um, it's difficult to imagine, right? So you have all these kind of different relations or parts and attribute relations, whatever, it does not matter if it's a relational database or some, something else. The, the problem is that it's really conceptually unintuitive. It's nice from a computer science point of view, no redundancy and all this kind of stuff, but really difficult to query. Now you can say, sure, we have Google, right? I mean, they can do everything, they can do this. So I just have this nice interface and I query, uh, look for it. Um, um, but I mean, this approach really ignores all structured information, right? So, so to some extent it's okay, but if you think about it, it's really amazing what they do with this very limited interface. And it's easy to come up with examples where you cannot cope with this interface. You cannot distinguish, for example, uh, SS, if you search as George Bush, is, if it's about or written by. I mean, in this case it's easy, right? Because written by is probably not so often, right? So, uh, <laughs> But in general, you get the point, right? Uh, you cannot express these kind of things. Uh, okay. So, so one more example, which you, you which you know, the IMDb database is really nice. Has a lots of table. It has movies, so it's kind of easy, right? I mean, it's just movies and actors and 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 um, and. Uh, um, and, and directors and this kind of things, uh, attributes. Uh, but it has quite a few tables, interestingly, if you downloaded it, if you play around with it. Now, if you try, for example, to search for a movie which was called Hot Fuss, with this one directed by a director named Wright, uh, action takes place in London, you use your usual Google-style query, Fuss London Wright, you get a lot of examples and a lot of results, right? 
Um, and actually, you get 81 combinations of 81 structural combinations um, of uh, which fit this specific query in the database. Right? I mean, there are more in general, but 81 which fit this one specific query, these three terms. Right? And these might be all nice movies, but not really what you what you want. Right? But as a user of IMDb, you, you cannot just just um, uh, uh, you do not want actually to use the schema, right? So let's let's think about how we could do this. We just start with this keyword query fine, but then actually the idea is uh, let's see where we find these uh, these query terms, right? Fast is in a movie title, yes, right? No, right is a name, yes. Uh, it's actually a director's name. Uh, so we have these kind of bits and pieces. We see where it fits, and then we could actually ask, right? And this would be one structure which we want, right? Now, I would not want to ask all these 81 combinations, obviously, and I do not want to ask every uh, a single question. So what about an interface which makes that kind of easy, right? So we, uh, in, in one of our projects which, uh, which was concerned with these issues, we implemented what we call the suits interface, which basically allows you to provide these keyword-style queries and then gives you feedback. It gives you feedback on what are the classes, what are the attributes where you have matches or partial matches. It also gives you feedback on what kind of uh, uh, structural combinations are possible for this query, right? So it's kind of a feedback uh, mechanism which, which tells you and kind of maybe, you know, faceted search which tells you, okay, if you refine using this and this attribute, you get these, these results. So this kind of maybe uh, some kind of extension to a, uh, to a more complex structure of, of this kind of feedback, structural feedback, right? So what we basically do is check time occurrence, generate appropriate database query and query construction units, get results, rank them. So it's important to rank both the possibilities for the keyword matches and also the results for the for the uh, structural combinations. I mean, if you have 81, you don't want to have 81 of them displayed, right? And you have to rank them in a meaningful way. Um, and I don't go into the details, but, but just mention some some uh, important ideas here. So what we do basically is uh, 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 incrementally construct templates, partial queries, which we put together, right, which, which fit this particular query, which we can then use to, uh, to, to search for it. You also need to uh, do that efficiently. You also do the query, querying the, the, um, the uh, database efficiently because if you have lots of 81 combinations are possible for this query which give you hits but there are many many more combinations possible in general right so uh, you have to take some care and a good algorithm to make that feasible and efficiently uh, um, uh, answerable right and you have to rank this um, uh, you want to rank the queries which you put to the database, and then you can uh, uh, use heuristics uh, which take into account what is the expected number of results. Usually, actually, users try to make specific queries, right? So one heuristic is that uh, that you prefer queries which have less results, actually, right? Um, attribute completeness, uh, you don't want to give... Uh, uh, you don't want to force the user to... to, to 
input the whole attribute, but if he does, it's actually a good sign. He tries, usually users try to be as complete as possible, same for terms, right? So you can use this in your ranking function. And you can try to put together partial queries and, and uh, use how they relate to each other, use subsumption relationship between these partial queries to find out what to execute and what not to execute and how to rank. And for the partial queries, you have the same issues uh, and heuristics for, for ranking. Okay. Um, so in the paper, which I point you to in a minute, we, we did experiments on IMDb uh, and on Lyrics. These are totally different databases. Uh, IMDb is structurally more complex. Um, it's quite a big database, 10 million tuples. Uh, Lyrics is structurally less complex, but with a lot more text, right? So it's kind of the opposite. Um, and we just uh, tried this algorithm, how, see how it works, and there are more results in the paper. But this basically shows two things. Uh, what you get is not uh, really much worse than, uh, than uh, keyword search for small number of, of, uh, of, of keyword terms, uh, but it does not scale to, let's say, uh, uh, many terms, right, which which is said, but on the other hand, many people use two, three, four keywords, and for this you can use it. Um, and if you want to have more details, please ask me or just look at this uh, technical report, which you can also get from our website. Okay, one last thing. Uh, again, if you look for something like audiovisual resources, we have a project which is called FAROS, which is the main integrated project in the European Union right now. Uh, Stefan is also participating, which focuses on audiovisual search, right? Now, for audiovisual search, you have this interesting um, uh, characteristic that actually these audiovisual resources are usually opaque, right? Um, and, and Alex already pointed out that we do have nice algorithms, uh, but there are still somewhat limited, and also they do not really scale that well, right? If you imagine that, uh, that even Google has to index all their videos which are downloaded every second into YouTube, probably they could not do it as well, right? Uh, with pictures, a little bit easier, but still. Uh, so the amount of information is just, just really a lot. So, again, as Alex already pointed out, why not use the information which people give you uh, in these um, in these social environments, which includes text, which includes all other um, uh, information which is uh, available in forms, in all these public interactions people engage in, which become public on the web, maybe even more public than they are aware of. Right? I mean, I still or again get uh, get mails from former students ten years ago. Uh, we, ten years ago, I did an introductory course on something. Uh, we made uh, an archive available of the discussion forum, right? And now and then I get an email, please remove my entry from the discussion forum, right? I, I don't want to have it public anymore, right? So you might want to change what you did uh, or might want to remove what you did in ten years from now. Um, anyway, so, so you can use all this. It's interesting. Uh, you can use text. Now, you would say text uh, is really chaotic because you can put in everything. It's unstructured, heterogeneous, unreliable. But the nice, so, and that's true if you actually look at the text of, of one person, right? If you look at the text of lots of people, 
it becomes different, right? I mean, there's this nice book which you might know, Wisdom of the Masses, uh, Wisdom of the Crowds is called, right? Um, which uh, just says one thing, maybe, or one, uh, some can be summarized in one sentence. You find a lot of regularities um, in, in, in this uh, social information. And this is because we have a lot of common background, right? So obviously, even if we're allowed to take everything which we want to take in the way we want to take, uh, there will be lots of regularities, right? And we can exploit this. So if lots of people do this, we are able to find regularities. So we looked at this for a specific uh, um, um, kind of resources in the Faros context, and this is the last FM uh, site, which you might know, which is a nice... Uh, site which provides you with information about songs, artists, and whatever. It kind of tracks what you're listening to. It gives you personalized recommendation based on track usage, allows you to tag, gives you these nice tag clouds. And uh, what we did was basically get the data from Last.fm um, and investigate how we can use it, right? So obviously it's a lot of tags. Um, and we looked at ways how to use that for collaborative filtering in search uh, and compared to the conventional recommender-based algorithm, which would be based on track usage, right, which Last.fm currently uses. Right. So first, it's actually interesting to see and analyze what these tags are uh, used for, right, and how people tag, right. This is, uh, has been investigated for some collections, not for all. This is one specific investigation into these tags. It turns out if you look at the top 100 tags at Last.fm, 60% are genre tags, which is really interesting, right? So, I mean, maybe we should just forget about these manual uh, categorizations of music, right? People tag a lot, right? And probably there will be uh, uh, regularities which, which make it even more superior to a manual genre classification. And we are currently investigating exactly this question. 40% um, are uh, 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 other uh, texts like personal impressions, artist time period, etc. And some of them are more useful for search and some of them are less. And we are again uh, have a technical report which looks at what kind of texts are useful and helpful for search or less helpful for search. And uh, we investigated in this context, in the last FM context, uh, how does uh, collaborative filtering based on tracks, which is kind of the usual way to do it, uh, compare as a baseline algorithm to other uh, algorithms? And uh, as we investigated tags in that context, we uh, investigated collaborative filtering based on tags and search based on text, right? And you have then also the user profile, uh, the, the user description is, is, is a set of, uh, of tags, right? And again, I cannot go into the details. You can read them in the paper. But what we found out is actually uh, collaborative filtering using the text did not work quite out that well, right? Um, so these are the minus things. Um, it was still interesting to look at uh, and necessary to look at. But actually, if you search using uh, uh, these tech profiles, personalized search, it performs better. So it's just a very short summary of this part of the paper, right? Um, I think as a, as a second uh, result in addition to the tag analysis. So this is the end slide, um, and I just want to end it to once more uh, 
ähm, äh, mention this, this, this underlying question is not such a problem of, let's say, store, well, storing everything is not a problem at all, right? Um, indexing is partially a problem, getting the information is uh, partially a problem, uh, but not so many people have actually looked at how can you usefully ask for it, right? I mean, there are some nice, uh, nice uh, um, uh, approaches specifically for multimedia, like example-based search, etc., Uh, which sometimes works, sometimes does not scale. In general, this is uh, actually a, a more important question than most people realize, right? It's not so easy to search for something, even if you have stored it, even if you have indexed it. Right? If you use all the structural information you have available, you usually cannot use it. If you have all the metadata available, all these nice ontologies and, 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 and attributes, you cannot use it as a simple user because usually it's just too complex. And I think this is a question worth investigating further for the next, I don't know, five years, ten years. <laughs> Thank you. So any questions? I didn't quite understand. working? Yeah. I didn't quite understand this thing about the recommendation and the tags. Uh, you said something that the tags didn't help. Yeah, so, so uh, again, this is very short, just two slides for half of the paper, right? But uh, uh, if you do collaborative filtering, uh, then the idea is that you look at the actions one person does, right, what kind of books he buys on Amazon, what kind of songs he hears on Last.fm, um, and uh, look for persons who are most similar to you and then recommend uh, some of their choices to you which you have not yet heard, right? Uh, now, the collaborative filtering based on text is similar, only that you describe, uh, you have this interaction, you describe the person Uh, of course, through the songs he has heard, but then you store it as kind of tags, as a set of tags or weighted set of tags. Uh, as a user profile, then you, in this space, in this tag space, you look for similar persons, right, who use the same tags by listening or tagging. Uh, you find these similar persons, and then you, again you go to the songs and see what, what did they listen to, uh, what did they tag, and then you... you um, Uh, you suggest, right? So, so the, the hope was in this context, uh, searching and looking for neighbors in this tech space is better. It was not, but I mean, it was an idea which we investigated. While, while, when you use this kind of tech space for search, for personalized search, again, you have a user profile of the user described through tags, it works better. Yeah, and we did uh, user invest uh, this is uh, wrong direction. We did uh, user evaluations, uh, um, which, which, uh, where we ask, okay, how new are the songs to you and how much you like them, right? And, and, and we got significant, uh, better, significantly better results for these tag-based search algorithms. Let's thank a again. Thank you.
Our next speaker is uh, Professor Stefan Staub from University of Complutense Landau. He will be talking about a bright future for multimedia in semantic web. Okay, who's going to do the switch? Okay, um, welcome this afternoon. Oh, why has it moved? Before I wanted to start, I want to do this announcement, uh, some advertisement for the Semantic Multimedia Conference that we're doing in Copland. And you find some of the names you know, like, for example, Alex Hauptmann uh, being a program uh, co-chair. And, of course, being at an event like this one, I think that's highly relevant to do some advertisements here before I really start my talk. And if you... Want to refine it again, Googling for something, 2008 works, so that should do it. Okay, now I really want to come to my talk now. Um, uh, the perspective I want to take is like what kind of infrastructure can the semantic web give to the multimedia community? For this purpose, what I want to do is I want you to work a little bit through a scenario, not a completely seamless one, but a reasonably made up scenario, I hope. And for this scenario, that's more looking a little bit into the future, it fits very well with what Wolfgang presented with the Nepomuk project. And we have a couple of uh, building stones on which we can step, building bricks, but it's very far away from being completed. But we see that all the other people, Wolfgang, but also some industry, are going in the direction. Okay, so what is the scenario? Uh, a question that I encountered uh, a couple of times for making a talk was to say, depict people from my research lab. And then um, you can look for that, and maybe you find a picture like that. Okay, that's from our last research retreat. And that's already pretty good. Precision is perfect. Recall depends on how you count, right? If you include the undergraduates working for us, it's actually not so great. Um, why? So how do you end up with more? That was my question at this point. Like, how do I collect the other images relevant to that, not just uh, a subset of the people? And the, the, the problem there was really sort of like, you can search for such a picture, but of course it's very crucial that you know the context. So actually you can find this picture on the web. And what you then want to look for is the people that are underlined in red. Actually, they are not here, some full-time people, and the undergraduates are somewhere down the line. Uh, so, yes, there, there you want to look. But you maybe also want to look in our wiki because we got some more pictures there. Maybe we don't want to show all of them, actually, but uh, it's a place to look for. Actually, some people joined the group. They are not yet on the retreat image. Uh, you would find them on the web, actually, right? You would want to collect them and, and show them, uh, like this here. Actually, there are even some people in our group who say that there are in our group, like Root, and you find her uh, image uh, on um, such a LinkedIn crossing platform, business networking platform. And there she says name, image, and, and where she works, actually. Um, some of the people you may only find if I look in my personal files, in my personal email. Um, and then I have to put the information together, for example, here, that on the web you'll find that Noam Berkovici works for us. And uh, in my email, I have... Uh, his picture with his application. So you have to integrate more resources in order to, to deal with this scenario. Okay, so what have I shown you to you with this little scenario? It's basically that the multimedia objects I have shown to you, 
they don't live for themselves. They live in an environment, whatever the environment is, whether it's the web, whether it's my email, whether it's some wiki. And, of course, that's very well known in the multimedia field. I mean, looking at the environment for retrieval, that's, that's sort of like well-worn wisdom. I mean, no one's surprised by that. I think what is really missing so far is that if we add metadata about these multimedia objects, they must be very rich. They must come, of course, together with these multimedia objects. But also, they must come with a location where these multimedia objects are stored. They must come with who sent them, who talked about them, and so on. And that this whole knowledge infrastructure around them is not so much explored until now. There are a couple of projects. Xmedia, which we are funded from, is doing it. Uh, Napomuk is doing it. So there are a couple of works towards that direction. Now, if we look back again, what do we need to do to collect this? Of course, we need to look at where do we find such pictures in the portal, in a file system, in a wiki, in some outside service, or in the mailbox. And we need to somehow collect the data from this. We need to harvest the data that's out there in these different resources, maybe partially, maybe with some problems of inaccuracies. And we need to collect and organize them into some piece of information that fits together, that makes sense for us, in order to compose maybe a picture like this, where you find the group together with other people and other people's uh, images. So what do you need for that? You need to be able to describe these resources. You need to be able to describe the knowledge infrastructure. Of course, you need to be able to describe the images, and you don't want to reinvent the wheel there. But certainly what you want to add to the wheels you have is a knowledge wheel that allows you to, to crank and say, well, let's also look in this place. Let's also look in that place. Um, and so what we have done, we have developed a couple of ontologies in order to uh, be ship the data along together with the multimedia resources. And if you look at the problem, you'll find that there are several dimensions that you cannot treat the same way. So you need to distinguish what is the knowledge you directly have describing directly the content in the sense of all the MPEG-style dimensions of, 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 the, of the content of a multimedia object. What, what are your kind of uh, low-level descriptors, for example? Separately from that, you, for example, need to describe the domain in which you're working. So like looking at research groups, for example, is something that you want to have in a MPEG 7-like metadata standard. You don't want to encode the world in any one standard, right? People must be able to add this on top. And then you need these context ontologies that allow you to bring these very specific multimedia aspects together with the real world and the aspects of where this is stored, where this is communicated. And then, of course, you don't just need ontologies, but also a little bit of, um, uh, of systems that allow you to that facilitate this kind of access. Okay, so how to structure this knowledge? What is the problem there? You want to have some ontology to say what is what, what is the person, what is the region in the image. So what could be a scenario for that? Look at this image again, cropped and so on, to, to make it better fit on the slide um, at our research retreat. So you want to say something like, uh, you have a particular region, and in this region there's a person, and you want to annotate the content of this particular region, maybe, uh, with the name of Carsten Sarthoff and the kind of project he's doing, uh, the kind of topic he's working on, maybe. What is very important for the semantic web is that you do not just have these tags and you don't know uh, when you talk about uh, 
George Bush, is it the older or the younger? You want to link it to knowledge on the web for very many reasons. For example, for Kasten, it would be quite natural to link the knowledge on the web that this region, region one, depicts code maniac colon me, which is uh, his own abbreviation for uh, his faux file description. And if you look at that, you can see more information about Karsten that you find on the web. And it is a unique URI, so you can distinguish the different uh, Karstens that are out there. The same, of course, is true if you go for a video lecture, for example. Now, what is the challenge there? What do you have to do? The multimedia objects are complex. In an image, you want to identify regions that you want to annotate semantically. Uh, in a multimedia, in a, in a video lecture with slides uh, being synchronized along as you, well, actually record uh, and then uh, display the, the video lecture, you want also to identify regions and want to describe, okay, this here is a video proper, but this is rather the PowerPoint presentation and these things are um, synchronized. So you have very complex objects and there are compound information objects. You need to be able to identify fragments in a very generic way and you must be able to identify the semantic annotations to any kind of, of fragments, be they temporal, be they uh, spatial, be they composed of several subfragments. You need to do the semantic annotation, of course. Of course, we all run into problems that uh, the semantic web is not solving. For example, subjective interpretation. If you look at such a picture, it means something different for you than for me. Be clear about that. The semantic web will not solve that, right? Because you can provide a classifier. You can provide a person tagging images. You can provide uh, feedback by retrieval. And then people will judge something or the classifier will judge something. Neither will be the truth, right? And, of course, you can only carry along what you have. You, the semantic web will not make up the correct meaning for you. But at least what you find, you want to semantic annotate in order to be able to reuse it. And that's a role for the semantic web, not the subjective interpretation itself. It's carrying along, carrying along the context dependency. And then having linked data principle, you want to reuse available ontologies that are out there that describe how research um, groups work, uh, ontologies that describe how uh, a lecture works. And for these different dimensions, you need actually different ontologies. You need a multimedia ontology to reflect MPEG-7. You need a context ontology to, to describe uh, how the semantic annotation is done. And you need the domain ontologies. And that's really the challenge to which we have provided an at least initial uh, solution, and that has to be hardened over time as we go along in, in several projects where we use um, this core ontology of multimedia, COM, it is called here in the title. And here you see the example again and how this would look like in a semantic web format. It's basically a graph, right? So down here, down here, you have basically some XML stuff. I mean, it doesn't make sense to translate everything which is in MPEG-7, for example, into... Um, RDF, because for many regards, XML will still be more efficient and will not actually hurt you, but only help you. But then if you uh, look at fragments that are arbitrarily nested, not particularly in a, in a tree-based order, you may want to give up this um, property. And you rather want to have a very generic framework for describing a fragment such as region 1 and how it is realized as part of a picture like this JPEG picture depicted here. 
So for that, we have worked on re-engineering part of MPEG-7 and providing a cleaner structure on carrying along these contents in this core ontology of multimedia. Now, next to that, you can also set the semantic annotation. For example, annotate that here is actually this URI for this person, and you could look for this URI, what's the name of this URI, according to, to his own FOF file. Now, what is important about this picture? What is important here is what you don't see. You don't see the boundary. You don't see the boundary really clearly where does the MPEG-7-like description starts and where does it end and where does the, the natural world information starts and where does the natural world information ends. So on the right-hand side, you have person and you have the code maniac. And on the left lower side, you have, for example, XML description of uh, your specific low-level descriptors. And the ontologies and the links in between bring all these objects together in order such that you can query for them in an integrated manner. Maybe you only want to have uh, some images of, with particular colors um, in, and want to have Carson on that. So that's, that's an infrastructure that allows you to ask this kind of question. And you need to follow some patterns, some ontology patterns, such that it's understandable to tools and to people how this fragmentation was done. Um, I don't want to go into the analysis of that, but MPEG-7 is not very good in this aspect. You have to read in the paper why. So what is important here is what you don't see. There's no boundary among all this data. Another scenario, which is going back to the first, to the initial scenario, is uh, Noam sent his application um, I store this information in some place on my disk, for example, and we communicate a bit, and he puts me, he links me to some other colleagues. He actually worked with uh, another colleague from Paris before he applied, and uh, then I checked with the colleague, and I eventually said, okay, please prepare papers for his hire. So if you think about this image of Noam here, it's, it's not just being in places, it is shipped along. There are communication uh, acts that have happened. And it, it happens to me not so infrequently that I don't remember where I have saved something, but I remember uh, with whom I had the last email conversation about it, be it a paper or something like else. So for us, I think at Humes, it's good not to think about just like one category. So we, we need like one database to store the information or just only email, or structured email, or unstructured email. I think we need a plurality of approaches that allow us to give different cognitive entry points into the data we have. And that the cognitive entry point may be a date. It was a Sunday evening when I sent this mail. Or it was, I chatted with Stefan when talking about this subject. Or it was, oh, I put it next to the other paper on the same topic. So we really want to have this plurality of entry points, of anchor points to accessing this data. And I think that's, this scenario makes it a little bit plausible, I hope. Okay, looking at the picture again, of course, and maybe the picture in the file, the question is, well, where does it sit, of course? We were, who were the colleagues? What was the resulting document for hiring Noam? And this context is typically lost now. When we communicate via different channels, be it instant messaging, email, 
or, or Skype, this communication is typically lost. And when we classify information by whatever way on the web or on the wiki or in the file system, such information is typically lost. So we need to somehow store this context and this classification of multimedia that we have. Obviously, I will come to that a little bit later. When we have that, we also want to ask, where did you get this from? You don't want to believe everything, right? At least you want to be able to say, okay, there's the wisdom of the crowds, or, well, actually, there are ten answers, but I only believe uh, two of them because the rest were from a person I don't like or whatever. Okay, so what do you have to do then if you want to build up an environment that allows you to catch, to, to, uh, to capture such, such information? Information about filing, sharing, explaining, creating stuff, structuring stuff. You need to deal with the different aspects. So we did a little bit of investigation. What are the aspects that we need to treat where we need to do some capturing? And we tried currently to, to just harvest some of the low-hanging fruits there, actually, because there is much to be done. And if you actually look in all the individual fields, for example, in intelligent user interfaces and the email management tasks they're doing there or in the Kai conferences, they're doing very, spe very specific, great stuff there. And uh, the same is true if you look in the other places with the querying of multimedia uh, pieces. Uh, what I see a little bit as a problem is that you have these fragmented approaches here and there who are doing all great stuff, but they don't go easily together. Uh, you can say it's just a matter of engineering, of course, but this just uh, is quite a dangerous just. So you need to think about how to bring these different aspects together. For example, to look at like how do you realize some piece of multimedia information. Um, and you need to, for example, describe that you find one file in different places, uh, that maybe one or the other place has different implications on it concerning the resolution. You want to talk about communication happening between people because that's very important when I look at my laptop. A lot of the data on my laptop is about data that has been communicated between people. Um, you look at decomposition, that's actually inherited from the core ontology of multimedia that I've talked about or like, that I've alluded to before. And you want to, uh, to, to capture existing classifications, be it from email uh, classifications, because it, well, at least I do classify my emails, some other people don't. Um, some people do uh, file classification in our wiki. We have some ordering in our document sharing system. We have some ordering. So there are a lot of places where you can try to harvest something. Uh, then there's the next question. Now, if you look at these ontologies and these patterns, it's all quite nice. But then you find there are such ugly beasts of the ontology people like particulars, pre-endurance, quality. Sometimes you find event or something like that. Uh, that's not something that an email developer really wants to look at, right? I mean, he wants to look at his sent mail, but not really at this kind of stuff. So it's not good enough to say, okay, here we got this great ontology. Now go and use it and be happy ever after. Uh, you really have to look into also, like, how can you make this um, stuff more usable? For example, by providing some API. So uh, one PhD student, uh, Thomas Franz, he's developing... Um, an architecture that is combinedly provided together with the ontology, where on the one hand side you have these patterns for the ontology that allows you to extend existing mechanisms in a 
reasonably predictable way. You're never quite 100% sure, but a reasonably predictable way. But on the other hand, you also want to sort of provide standard APIs for standard tasks like filing information, uh, communicating information, and then a software developer can see uh, how, how has this been done for email, how can I do it for instant messaging, right? So you can provide an abstraction, a programmatic abstraction that people can look to and then uh, use that stuff, hopefully. Uh, we can use it. I have not seen others uh, <laughs> rebuild an email client using our technology. And then you see this is the resulting metadata. Yes, you have the different aspects, people, um, multimedia files, realization aspects, with, which are about where do I find such an image, um, communication aspects, classification aspects. Now, you also want to bring this stuff a little bit together, right? If you have these aspects, how will they be available? Now, I changed the person to Nasir. The different aspects may not be available in, in one Slide in, in one place. They may be uh, distributed over different places in the email application, in a multimedia database, um, on some server hosting some wiki, for example. So it may not be so easy to, to integrate all this information. You have to think about federation of these pieces of knowledge and about how you can work with this federation. Now, the good thing is, the bad thing is, or the difficult thing is, as Wolfgang has shown, Schemas can be very, very big and ugly. Uh, at the same time, you want to do a federation, right? So you, what you want to do is you want to be able to say, I have here a little bit of information, you may use that. And then some other person may say, well, actually, here's that information I want to reuse. Let us look at this slide here. And what do you find here? What you find here are graphs, Graphs, RDF graphs, you can think of them as containers or you can think of them as, as databases, contextualized databases, I would maybe say. Each graph may sit on the same node or they can all sit on different nodes and you can have fuse between them. So in a way, it's a typical sort of like database integration architecture using RDF. The good point about RDF is you don't need really to, to understand this the, the, the schema deeply, right? That's a good point. You can just put ODF next to each other. You, see, you also have problems with that. And Wolfgang talked about some of them, about ones that I don't talk about. So that was a good complimentary talk, actually. Um, and so you, but you have these snippets, large or small snippets of information can be millions of triples or just a few. So if you look at the most successful application of RDF, it's the full files. If you find, I guess, several millions of them, and then you can find one like Nasir says, here is Nasir. He has created this file, and Nasir is depicted in this JPEG file that I've shown you. You may also look to a different source like the ESWeb wiki, and you may find something there that... Um, ESWeb is depicted in a particular JPEG file, and on this uh, particular JPEG file, maybe uh, you find a particular person. Now, when we build information about our group, what we really want to say is something is, okay, what is our name? Who are the members? You may remember some of this information on our website anyway, so that's actually hosted in a database anyway, right? It's not that we have to, to provide this anew. It's, it is in a database. And... What we then want to do is to reuse information. Some of the stuff is just uh, copying, copy some stuff from our uh, wiki that we already have, copy some stuff from members, if the members fulfill some properties like being team members and 
they have a passport photo here, then you want to, f to uh, provide that. And what you want to provide that with is you really have to select sources between the different graphs. So this right-hand graph here, ESWebForf, wants to say which pieces of other graphs should be incorporated and don't care about the rest. So what you want to do here is you want to define a few using the RDF mechanisms. So use RDF so to pull yourself out of the morass uh, in order to copy the right piece of information here and find that ESWeb is also depicted in the image by Nasir. Once you have that, of course, you also want to ask, where did you have these images from? So you want to provide meta information about this piece of information comes from this graph, from that graph. And then you may want to add other information like, uh, can I trust it because someone signed this picture or do I not want to trust this information? So what you see here is an image where we have these multimedia objects around in different clouds linking to each other, providing URIs to give you a unique reference point. And then you can, on the one hand side, use patterns in order to better be able to reuse things like an understanding of the multimedia objects. We did a re-engineering of MPEG-7 for that in order to come up with a more sound description of what MPEG-7 is. And then you can sort of like ship this data around using the declarative mechanisms like we showed here. Take home message for that. Context for multimedia objects to use that for retrieval and for uh, production is very well known. We also need a knowledge structure mechanism that comes around with the multimedia objects, a corresponding knowledge infrastructure and ways for capturing. Some first steps are done because we have something like so many web languages, which a lot of different tools can use and understand. We even have some in industries that are catching up on this thought a little bit. For example, Adobe provides RDF for PDF documents and other documents for several years now. Um, in the open document format of uh, OpenOffice, uh, we'll use RDFA in the next version. And they are now playing around with thoughts of how best to use RDF for carrying around the metadata together with your document. Of course, you want to use existing databases as well as multimedia databases. And this stuff offers you a good entry point. You may ask, well, Adobe has done this for several years. Of course, it's most useful if you have the network effects. So being the first one is always a punishment, especially if you're an industry provider doing that as the first one, because you don't get a lot of traction until a lot of people do it. And then there are, of course, very, very many interesting issues. Standardization of protocols to access such data is not good enough to have PDF in Adobe formats and in open document formats and in whatever format comes next. You need also protocols. You need heterogeneous management of data application services because some of the stuff you remember the image with a root being in this external provider you want to use this as a service. Uh, you want to describe this semantically. There is a service now out for some of these open social platforms called Open Socialist is the standard. You want to reuse that in order to get, for example, an image of root. And you need mixed systems. You need mixed systems for to querying and reasoning. And you also need systems that do the low-level extraction and let you access that very efficiently, highly efficiently.
in a rather distributed manner, and you may need to sort of like call some of these um, extractors on the fly when you think it's worthwhile because you cannot provide all the information that are, could potentially be useful upfront. So I think there are many, many issues open to come close to the scenario as I have shown it to you. As I said, we have provided a couple of building blocks. Here you find some of them in the, this presentation, which I guess will be available anyway afterwards. There are a couple of papers out there, uh, or, well, still have to be written, and uh, the software is downloadable, so you can take a look at that. Um, thank you. And, of course, uh, don't forget to submit papers for the summit. Okay, questions. You, you talked a little bit about the sort of provenance of information when you were mm -hmm. looking at things like the context of that photograph. Has it come from someplace I trust? Is there anything in here to deal with the counterbalancing problem of privacy? Like, do I want my photograph to be scraped and used in this way, or are you discounting on some higher level sort of, you know, um, higher, higher level security screen to be... So, what can I tell? So, in my, my talk, there was nothing about privacy, right? So, in, in this scenario, basically, it becomes very easy to find your trace wherever you go, basically, right? Um, we had some discussion in our department whether such kind of data should have uh, and some notification that it uh, should be deleted automatically after a couple of years. So, maybe Wolfgang wouldn't have to do this manually uh, to delete this uh, discussion data anymore that you... You may be completely happy with the discussion as it was 10 years ago, and now you may not feel so comfortable with it anymore. So you need a mechanism to provide it. I don't know how this mechanism should look like. Uh, we do a little bit of work on that for uh, data that's carried around in services, where we provide locking mechanisms in order to prove what has been done with private data. I don't think that it really fits this very open scenario here. It fits rather a close scenario where a company has to do auditing to prove that it has not misused privacy data. That's the sort of scenario where we, uh, uh, that we look at. But for the very open scenario, I don't quite know how to deal with it. I don't quite know how to deal with it actually now in the non-semantic web. Okay, thanks. And in your talk, you talked about uh, linked data and network graphs and your examples. And the example you gave is you find image of someone in somewhere else and you copy that triple into your RDF graph. Is there any special reason for you not just to provide the link to the original graph rather than copy the statements? To? Yes, absolutely. Because what I described here was not that you go out into any place. What I described was but it was very short, so it was very hard to understand, uh, that uh, we as a group, as I as a web group, or, or I as a leader, define what is supposed to be in this graph by saying, okay, actually, here I have information, but also please go out to Nasir because he's now a group member and get information from him. But don't go out to Stefan because he's not a group member. Right? So it's actually a decision to be done. One could think about other mechanisms to do things of that, like that dynamically, but what I said here was not dynamically. It was rather just a, a vehicle to go around. Uh, actually, there are very many questions 
already with this very small vehicle of like uh, efficiency, how to do it if you run the cycles and things like that. Right. If you want to just link to data, then of course uh, it's different. Linking is different than reusing, right? Uh, linking is more like saying go to this other HTML place. Reusing is like you have a frame set and as part of that frame set, you say actually this part of the frame comes from this uh, page. And I think the two fulfill different requirements. Uh, exactly, so yes. Um, because I think you're working in a very uncontrolled environment. If you're working in a science environment, for example, um, many of the data resources may be under copyright control and scientists, they don't want to give that to you and you can only provide a link to that. And also you can provide provenance information for that link. So it can might be solve your copyright problems as what Ken just asked you about just now about the trust, the privacy, so you provide a link rather than reusing and copy. And it might be easier for you to maintain, you know, synchronized. It's like uh, the synchronization property. Okay, cost. our approach is dynamic. Okay. That, that's dynamic anyway. So the idea is not that sort of like you do this once and then leave it, but it's rather that you have up-to-date information. So you check you regularly. Because you a federation of, of the different pieces of data. Right. So you mean that your federation is going to be updated? It's a, Going have, to be do dynamic. you have any kind you can of think about how to do few maintenance then, and this is another topic. And yes, yeah, so. that's a, another big topic. Yeah. So do you have any notifi notification mechanism for that? No, it's basically just a, a dynamic query. Dynamic query. So basically, if you if you go back to the slide, what you see here, uh, no, here, um, this green box. Mm, this, this box here, it defines the view on the other box. And if you run into this, uh, imagine that this is a RDF store, then the RDF store will understand that for some of the queries, he will have to look here. So basically, you ask the RDF store, and the RDF store knows, ah, I also have to look at this place. Okay, so that's the distributed query that I will ask you yeah. later. Okay, thank you very much. More questions? Hello. Um, you mentioned standardization of generic protocols. Has there been some work in that direction? Or no? What org? I mean, there are. A, there is a protocol for Sparkle, for example. But what I really meant was at a different level, namely for interacting with the multimedia objects. Because now you look at uh, the way that we'll have to deal with uh, RDF in an open document format will be different than in a Adobe format. So you have. It would be good to have uh, a rather unique way or, or close to unique way of dealing with the different environments that host the multimedia and that are aligned to the multimedia. That's one part. Other parts will be that the Sparkle protocol is severely limited so far. So we make some small proposals for enriching it. And also other people, there are other people who look into distributed uh, reasoning, uh, look into ways that you need to, to include uh, to, to make Sparkle more powerful. I think for building the whole knowledge infrastructure, you have to look at data models, you have to look at uh, protocols, it's uh, a whole range of things that you have to look at. And of course, you have to provide tools such that people see the added value. So, so, what, <coughs> sorry, so what community is doing that? I'm not too familiar. Um, I, I see it not so much at the borderline between semantics and the multimedia. I don't see it there. 
I see it in the semantic web community on its own. Yes, there we have a couple of protocols and new protocol proposals for what should be out there in order to help the semantic web. Um, I don't see it at the, the borderline between the knowledge infrastructure and the multimedia data infrastructure, but I think we need it there too. Thanks. Any more questions? Okay, let's thank uh, Stefan again. The next here. speaker yeah. is uh, Dr. Ken Woods uh, from Microsoft uh, Research Cambridge. We'll be talking about uh, multimedia retrieval for real people. Thanks. Okay, because I've turned my phone off like a, like a good boy. Um, thanks for inviting me for this. I've really enjoyed it so far. And I, uh, this title may seem a little, a little grand or a little um, – really what I'm intending to talk about is just to – when I look at the whole area of multimedia information retrieval, multimedia knowledge management, I often think we need to take a step back and look at what what real users want to do and make sure that we're not we're not sort of pursuing narrow technological solutions to problems that don't exist while we're ignoring easy solutions that we have tool, tools in our tool bag for that could be applied properly. So that's kind of a, I don't, my overall sort of thesis. So I'm going to turn back to some quite old work, actually, that I did when I was at AT&T Labs to just sort of kick off this idea. So when I was uh, when I was at AT&T Labs, we wanted to study people's digital photograph management for their personal photograph collections, and we built this system called Shoebox. So um, on the first level, it was just a very straightforward uh, photograph management tool where you could browse by by role and you could organize them by date and you could give them sort of simple titles and topic and organize them that way. Um, but we also added let me. Do this. We also added um, a couple of extra features. We added one feature where you could annotate photos by voice, which we then transcribed into text using speech recognition, and we saved those, and we built an inverted index of those into the photographs. And um, we also added some relatively simple visual content searching techniques. Um, these were, you know, we would segment the images uh, for each region. We'd analyze the texture and color, and you could build up um, sort of groups of these regions and search. Basically, the um, the user could e- could either say, "Find me similar images to this," and it would use that that the overall um, segmentation of the image to do to do matching, or the user could circle a, a region in um, in the image and say, "Find me other images that have regions like that." And it worked reasonably well as far as these things go, as you probably all know. And we um, we gave this to uh, 15 people for six months, and we logged their use, and we interviewed them several times. We really wanted to get an idea for for you know how they were using it and how, what their what their photograph management practices were. Um, so yeah, so we we followed 15. It was actually 15 families rather than 15 individuals over six months. You can tell how uh, that this was a few years ago by that first sentence under the number of participants because they were given digital cameras because not all of them had them. <laughs> So this was, I guess this is six and a half years ago, right? So, you know, that seems not that long ago, but, there, you know, a lot of people didn't have digital cameras then. So they were all given them, and they were interviewed several times during, uh, they were given questionnaires and so on. And as I said, these are the, the goals were just to look at how people do manage the photographs. Uh, in fact, we actually, in the, in the, uh, in the first interviews, we, we also talked about how they manage their paper photographs because we wanted to contrast that to how they manage their digital photographs. And to look at these novel features, both the, the, um, the audio annotations and the visual search features. Um, 
So these are some sort of general results, and this is one of the things that I feel quite strongly about. Is, and, and this, I think, has carried on in, in subsequent work that I've been doing at, and others have been doing at Microsoft and, and elsewhere, is that certainly for people's personal photographs, they very seldom want to search, but they really want help with browsing in sort of interesting and targeted ways. And that certainly came, came across in this study. Um, the novel features that we had, both of them, both the, the transcribed audio annotations and the visual search, took a distant second place to simply good date-based layout. And this, this actually applied even in, in a later study to much larger photo collections than these people had. Um, and yeah, so as, as I said, whatever sort of media processing we do should aim to support browsing. That's, that's, what, that's, what, that's what came out of this study. Just to give you a little idea of the types of things that we that we asked and what some of the sort of concrete results of the study were, um, you can see that we um, there's a few of the features that um, that Shoebox had, and the one and two here correspond. The one was they were asked, "Do you think this feature will be useful?" before they were, they actually had it, and so that's what those scores are. And then after they used it for six months, the the uh, the two interview is having used that feature for six months, did you find it useful? Now the real telling box here is that one, <laughs> right? So unfortunately, the the sort of visually similar um, search feature. Everybody thought that would be great. Nobody liked the one we gave them anyway. Now I do take the point that there, you know, it, it was, uh, it was, we used quite low-level image features. But it, for that kind of thing, it wasn't bad. It did often give you, you know, visually similar features. But it turned out, it turned out that when you ask a sort of normal user, when you say, "I'm going to give you a feature that lets you find similar photographs," what goes on in their mind about what similar means is not what similar means if you're a computer vision guy. <laughs> Absolutely not, and that's really what came clear here, is that the kinds of things they thought that meant just never happened. When they clicked on a, on a picture of their husband and they wanted to find other pictures of, the, of their husband, that didn't work, for instance, right? Um, and, you know, you all know why that's hard, and you know, Alex talked about some of the problems this morning. Um, but so that was, you know, that was, a, that was a very big takeaway from that, from that study. Now, before I get on to sort of a more current work, there was one interesting um, sideline to this shoebox study that content-based image retrieval using basic features can, in some instance, instances, be extremely useful. Uh, and they were very useful for this set of photographs that I got from um, an institution near Cambridge. Can anybody guess what these are? Anybody want to? What's that? Ooh, very good. You're the, this is the only audience that has ever guessed that. That's right. These are highly magnified cross-sections of flakes of paint taken from old masters' paintings. And this is, this is actually, we ended up, I can't remember how we actually got in touch with them, but these are from the Hamilton Care Institute, just outside of Cambridge, which does, which does painting restoration. And they, the, what they want to be able to do, they have thousands and thousands and thousands of these photographs of paint samples. And what they want to be able to do is to segment those into regions based on color and texture and find other such images that have matching color and texture. And, and we're good at that, right? That's, you know, finding other pictures of your husband, hard. Finding similarly colored textured regions, we can do that. And, and they really like this. I mean, this actually helped them in their, in their, in their work. So that, you know, this is sort of one example of something that I was actually talking to one of the, um, the guys from Immense earlier. That if you, there are certainly targeted niche applications where we can do extremely well using content-based techniques. Uh, I'm, it's just that I'm not so sure that the general, that the, the, the more general multimedia management problems are, are always, are always such cases. Um, 
So yeah, let me move on now to, um, you know, the, I guess I don't really mean CBIR here, but the basically image processing techniques have moved on a lot since we did that shoebox work. So it's clear that we could build a much better, you know, find me pictures of my husband sort of thing. Although, um, so this is just some work, uh, some guys in the uh, in the lab in in our lab, um, our computer vision group have done quite a lot of work on unsupervised um, 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 object object classification. And I won't go into the details of um, how this works because I don't really understand them. But um, um, they, they you know, they've done several. Um, They've, uh, they've looked at a whole bunch of different object classes. And what they can do pretty reliably now is this kind of class recognition. And I think this is also similar to what Immense is, um, is doing probably. I don't know whether it uses the same sort of techniques. And there, you know, this, as far as I understand it, this is pretty much state of the art object recognition now. And they do extremely well on these categories that you see listed across the bottom and that you see some sort of samples of the, of the output of, uh, of having um, thrown a sort of classified, a, a, a train classifier. Um, these are all roughly, you know, I think they're 95% or so on the samples they use. And they're, they're, they're using, you know, tens of thousands of images here. So it's pretty good, right? And the, I don't know how many there are. There's maybe 20 sort of classes there. And you think, well, that's good. Um, now, however, um, this is a problem. Chairs are difficult. <laughs> it turns out they, they have trained a classifier on chairs. So those other ones that I went, I can't remember what, what we had, we had, you know, cows, sky, grass, even airplanes are not so bad. It turns out chairs are hard. So they do, they do sort of about 95% on those other classes that I showed you. They're at about 30% on chairs when you use, when you take a, like the IKEA catalog and throw, throw it at this problem, right? It's, it, ch chairs are hard. Now, chairs are quite a common thing, right? And I think this, so this indicates to me that when Alex said, if we can get up to, say, 4,000 classes, we're done, we're not going to get up to 4,000 classes, at least not, not yet, because um, these 20 classes, that's about it in terms of pushing what you can do in a reasonable amount of time uh, and a reasonable amount of space, at least with this kind of classifier. Now, you know, maybe Immense has some, has some secret techniques that they can tell us about. But I think according to the team that has done this work, going beyond about 30 classes uh, just is computationally infeasible right now. And um, now I think one of the one of the counterbalances to that is multi-core may be some answer to that. And somebody pointed out, in fact, the, the immense poster talks about using grid to sort of fan out this problem. And you can do that. Half of that problem you can fan out, but half of this problem you can't. So we also need some innovation on the, the um, machine learning side. But I guess my, my point is that, particularly given what Alex said in the morning, um, oops, sorry, um, and, and given the fact that, that a lot of common objects are hard to do and finding wife or, or husband automatically is, is also very hard. We're a long way from, from advances just in the image processing um, taking us to a, to a much better level than we were with shoebox. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually ready for, for, some, uh, for some, uh, some, uh, some feisty debate on this later on because I realize that not everybody may feel that way. But, I, you know, even after six and a half years, I still feel fairly strongly about that. Excuse me. So, um, so let's now look at, at, at that, was, that was searching personal photograph collections. That's what Shoebox was about. That's largely what the, um, the work, the, um, uh, the object recognition work in, uh, at our lab is, is aimed at. Now, what about image search on the web? Um, now, this is, this is an interesting stat here. Right? It turns out that people treat image search quite differently to the way that they treat uh, web page search. Um, 
75% of web search of 75% of web searches never go beyond the first page. You type in the terms, you look at the top 10, you choose one of them, you're done. Um, for image search, it's much less than that. People go at, go quite a bit deeper when they're looking for images. Uh, it says uh, it's um, uh, for, on, on less than half uh, stay just on the first page. And you actually have to go down to page 8 before you hit that 75% threshold, which is quite interesting. So you know, people dig down. So... That means there's something different about image search. So what could we do? And we could we could throw some of our complicated learning techniques at it. But you can also do something a lot simpler than that, right? So um, the current uh, interface to these things, or the, the sort of old one, and I can't remember whether Google has done this now as well or not. But um, was that you know you would you would type in your terms, you'd get a bunch of images back, uh, and you'd hit the next page, you'd look at those, hit hit the next page. Because people tend to dig a lot further, rather than doing anything extra fancy, just let them just let them keep scrolling. So that's what uh, the um, the live the live images search. That's what it does. So you can just scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll. There there is no paging, and that has actually resulted in in that actually led to a, quite a, a large uptake in the uh, in the number of people using using it. And very very simple. And I guess that's you know one of the general points that I'm sort of making here is there are there are sometimes simple things we can do. That we can uh, that can make a big difference by looking at, at at how at how people actually behave and whether you look at them sort of ethnographically to tease out what they do or like those web search results to show just look at them you know numerically just look at look at how sort of people behave on mass um, and there there are other things too you can um, um, making the thumbnails resizable as you as you pan over them so you can get more of them on on one sort of visible screen even sort of before you did the the infinite scroll also also made a difference. So that as you just pan over, the metadata comes up. So this is this is from the live search guys in Redmond, but that um, that worked fairly well. Um, and yeah, another thing about uh, so thinking again about 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 combining text features and image features, which is something that came up in several of the earlier earlier talks. Although nobody actually mentioned click graphs, and that's another thing. An, you know, it's so it's kind of it sort of combines anchor text and uh, the sort of ESP game style thing. And what the way that that this works is, you can essentially match text words to images by looking at people doing image searches on the web. So if I search for tiger on the web, uh, I get back a bunch of images. I click on one of them. Suddenly, we know we can map the word tiger to that to that image because I uh, my sort of human brain has has made that link. And you can do that over and over and over and over again, and you can build up this click graph where, which gives you a good idea of what types of things people may want to see when they type, in this case, say, panda. And what's interesting here are, so the, the, um, if you just look at the, at the, the weight of the click graphs, right, the things that are tightly in the middle are more likely going to be what you want if you type panda. Um, if you type panda, you're very unlikely to want to see a picture of the lesser panda. Almost everybody wants to see pictures of the great panda or the, the, yeah, uh, or the giant panda. That's kind of what people mean by panda. The lesser panda is more rare, so you very seldom want to hand that back. But if you type lesser panda, that's definitely what you want because you obviously know what one is. And this comes out automatically from this kind of, from this kind of analysis. So, um, and you know, that's without any kind of visual processing whatsoever. However, going back to um, on the live search engine, 
some extremely simple, and even calling this CBIR techniques is even too much. These are just non-text features. The only ones that prove, and they tried a bunch of them, right? They, they tried some of the more complicated ones, some, you know, based on histograms and all, the, all those kind of things which we've done for years. Um, the only ones that made any real difference were very simple ones. Color entropy, meaning that sort of multicolored images uh, um, uh, tend, tend to be preferred over um, over sort of monochrome or, 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 or less distinctly colored ones, um, having a reasonable aspect ratio and a uh, not too big and not too small. And that uh, doing that, and once again, we can follow those through that click graph uh, sort of technique. So we know that that actually helps. So um, right, let me just take a drink here. I should say, too, I don't know how sort of fast that I'm going along, but I'm happy to take questions along the way as well if, if people like. Um, so having looked at um, click graphs, for um, web search results and, and the um, or for for web-based image search and um, and having looked at how uh, CBIR techniques may or may not apply to personal photograph collections, we're looking now at how we can combine the two, and this actually works um, extremely well. So what what you see here is um, this is a sort of image query. By example, this is find me images similar to this, and we can actually debate later whether people actually do that very often, but um, if that's what you want to do, if you look at the query image in the top there, which is a picture of London Bridge, I guess, or no, Tower Bridge um, at night, um, if you do, um, if you use computer vision techniques, so I'm going to work sort of bottom up here, uh, the top five image matches are the ones uh, at the bottom there. And this is, I think this is, I can't remember the exact technique. It's not quite color histogram, but it's not much more than that. But it's, it's, a, it's a, a slightly more sophisticated algorithm than that. And you get, and, the, and this is a database of about 25,000 images, I think. And you get, um, you, know, you get some matches that are reasonable. They're all kind of similarly colored, of course, because that's what, what we're doing here. But they're, not all of, they're certainly not all of Tower Bridge. Um, now, if you use the click ranking technique, so basically we we just took the actual live live search web search engine click graph and we threw it at these terms, um, you get those features, and those are actually very bad. And what that indicates is that London is probably the word that tended to get to tended to get clicked on mostly, or, or tended to cause that image to be clicked, because those are mostly pictures of London. I'm not sure. What, yeah, in fact, all of them are. Um, but if you combine the two. If you use click ranking weighted by, by the visual features, bingo. That actually works. Uh, that seems to work extremely well. So that's given us all London pictures, mostly Tower Bridge, and nighttime shots, which is, which is good. And then, you know, once again, that's using relatively simple CBAR. Just another example of the, of the same thing with a, a picture of a tiger. You know, the visual similarity gives you what you'd expect. Um, the click graph isn't too bad, but you get some, or I guess you get some pictures of jaguars. I guess that's a jaguar, perhaps. Um, you, you get a few pictures of the car, you combine the two, and you get a bunch of nice pictures of Jaguars. So um, that's just a, uh, you know, and that's, I guess, just another example of this. Take, take tools that we have, put them, put them, combine them in useful ways, and, and, and get something that people will actually, will actually find useful. I think that's the, the overall technique. So I guess I've actually spoken more quickly than I thought, given that I probably have some time left. So I'll, because um, this, this last, uh, I just brought a video clip of another, so of, it, you know, in some ways it might seem like a um, gratuitous <laughs> use of video clip, but I'll just show this because this is some stuff that we're doing now on uh, surface-based 
computing, and it just shows ways of interacting with photographs um, using a surface computer. This is this was an early version of this. It's not the one that Microsoft's actually actually marketing at the moment. So the the guy put his phone down, and the photos that were on there got slurped out via Bluetooth, and he can now use his hands to sort of manipulate them. And uh, as this carries on, there's there, there's another segment to this video that will show another aspect of this. Um, but I think the, the point that I wanted to get across here is there are going to be other ways where we can let people, the way that people physically manipulate and organize um, information to carry over into the way that they'll use their digital information. And that should actually affect the way that we think about the tools that we build as, you know, as people in the area of, of multimedia management. Um, so it's, it's, it's this other one that I really wanted to show where there are, are now physical tokens that are sort of little pots that can hold photographs, and you can they can you can put photographs into these physical pots. You could put them on a shelf, and you could organize them in, um, you know, in sort of some way. You could put them down again and take photographs out of them, and that that is a very nice example of this the kind of line between physical and digital media that I think is, you know, leads to very usable systems and may mean that, you know, that that there are that there are very different ways that we can that we can introduce. Um, tools for multimedia knowledge management in in this sort of physical space. We'll, you know, have a, a, um, take taking into account that line between the physical and the digital. Um, and with that, I think that's um, all that I have. Thanks. Thank you very much. Right, so I just leave this here. A question. Oh yeah, of course. Yes. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Damn, I almost got away with it. <laughs> Any um, any questions? No questions. Yes. Uh, do you have any um, feeling, or uh, could, could you say more about why is it why why are chairs difficult, and um, uh, how to go about uh, resolving that issue? Uh, the chairs idea, I guess, is goes back to the old AI uh, program. Yeah. Uh, but what's really different? from chairs to... Uh, so w w what kind of output do you get? Because you didn't show the results on the chairs. You just said it, it, it fails com when you use the same system. Yeah, sorry, I didn't... And yes, I, I, not, I, I should just point out that this is work that I haven't done myself. But the guys in the lab who have done this work, I ask them about this because they, um, they often open up their talk with that picture of the chairs and say, this is our challenge because chairs are hard. And I think they said it was roughly, you know, they only do about 30 or 35% on chairs in terms of the stats that they use. So I guess basically in a large database of pictures of chairs, if they train on half of them, the other half, they'll only recognize, uh, you know, much less than half of them. And I think the reason for that is just that chair, you know, the sort of visual properties of chairs are much more sort of muted and, um, uh, you know, are, are much more difficult to uh, to tease apart than airplanes or cows or things like that. And it's just that the, you know, um, what makes up a chair is a very um, sort of abstract set of things. I think that's what it is. And so they, 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 can, they can do better if they have many, many more training examples, except that they obviously reach that line where they've overtrained. And so um, it's, um, you know, it's just, um, it's just a, a harder thing to automatically classify. And in terms of the future for this, trying to solve this kind of challenge, um, uh, can you say a little, a little bit about where Microsoft is heading with this kind of challenge? Are they, are they going to try to tackle it, or is this something you're leaving for, the, for later? It depends what you mean. We're certainly trying to, 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 do, to come up with sort of better and better ways of doing this 
idea of object classification. But at the same time, we're not aiming to break down the sort of AI hard wall. I mean, I think that's a, just a non-starter. Right? What we're trying to do is look, do the sort of best we can on limited object 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 classification and find application areas where where that can be useful. I mean, I was talking over the break with somebody about this, and one obvious example is at supermarket checkouts, right? Because you've got a, a, even though it's a large set, it's a, a constrained set of objects that you need to recognize. So you could use this kind of technique there. And, uh, and then, you know, to, to, to sort of more fully automate that process. But the idea of the sort of generalized AI scene understanding, I think, you know, we're a long way from that. And I think most people think that they're, that it's better to work kind of bottom up on that problem and just, you know, solve problems that you can on the way rather than aiming for that, that topmost point. That's, that's how I certainly feel. Thank you. More questions? Huh? Okay. Um, don't you have uh, Professor Heckler? What was his name again? The what? Statistic. Statistic. Uh, this, uh, his very famous statistics uh, in statistics. Huh? Yes. <laughs> I was just no. I was just reflecting. You're not going to break the going to uh, compete with the AI problem too much, but you already have a very famous ex- uh, expert in the field. But. Oh, I see. Yeah, well, <laughs> wasn't really my yeah, question. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, uh, my question was: I didn't understand the the click maps, or how do, how how do you generate those click maps? We um, because we run a, a an actual worldwide image search engine. We simply keep track of of the search terms that people type, and the images that they click on afterwards. Right. So if you typed, um, you know, if you typed lion, and you saw, you know, and 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 the sort of first page of images had a, 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 a couple of things that you were trying to find. Maybe it was a cartoon image of a lion. If you click on it, we then record that as a mapping between the word lion and that image. And we do that sort of, you know, over, over the, over the long term for all, for all people doing searches. Okay. Is it open? Can I, what's the name of the service? Can I, I have no, a look at not, it? No, I'm afraid that's, it's just, uh, it's only used internally at the moment. I think, I mean, I think the same is true for Google and Yahoo and all those types. Sorry about that. Thanks. Alex? So your uh, desktop interface. Sorry. Yeah. Could you see, could you see um, applying your desktop spatial manipulation interface to working with video also? Absolutely. We're, we're, we are actually working on that now. Um, you know, it's actually quite nice, even, even just for sort of simple video editing, being able to sort of pull things around. It's, it's a very natural way of working. So, we, yes, absolutely. Yeah, we can, yeah. yeah. Can we get a copy of that, sir? Uh, yes, you can actually. <laughs> Always, I shouldn't say right now, but I mean the thing is, they're actually, you know, Microsoft is actually marketing those things. I mean, not 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 those ones, but more improved versions of them. Where I don't know if anybody saw the announcement a while ago, but the Microsoft Surface. If you just go to surface.microsoft.com, you can you can see it. And um, yeah. Just a question. Follow that click graph. Uh, well, you think, but because you run that engine, which basically you can collect the statistics information about the papers labeling the um, choosing of image and the, the keywords they typed. Do you think that uh, Yahoo and Google will do a similar thing at the moment? Yes, I'm the sure they are. Right. Yeah, I mean, it just, it just makes I sense. I think it's quite so natural because all these people run search engines. They're always, on the one hand, they provide service. On the other hand, they collect a lot of data, information. They're going to use this to improve that. 
this knowledge. Yeah, no, that's true. And the thing is, that's, you know, I, I sort of jokingly said, that, or, no, I didn't jokingly say it, but I did say that we aren't giving that information out, no, which is true now. But the thing is, in terms of academic partnerships, particularly MSR is very interested in, in, in this academic partnerships. So I'm not saying that it would be impossible for you to get access to at least perhaps earlier sets of click data. You know, it's something, if, if anybody's interested in that, you know, talk to me and I'll talk to the powers that be and see, see, see whether it is possible or not. You said because you, the result you showed that same that you then combine this, uh, Calligraphy information with the visual features as uh, information, but then you get uh, almost perfect result. Yeah. How, how do, uh, what, what is the way for you to combine these two together? Oh, do you mean how, 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 how do we actually combine them? I yeah. think it was just a, a sort of after the fact. I think it was just click graph first, and then on that click graph right. set, the, that same sort of simple visual okay. one was, was then applied. I, I mean, but I'm sure, th I'm sure that there would be cleverer ways of doing that. Right. This was, this was just recently knocked up. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Just uh, wanted to know about this uh, surface, because uh, we were trying to use it, but I was investigating and didn't find any SDK. So is it only available for Microsoft Research or? Yeah, for the time being. The thing is also, it's, it is being, you can't actually buy them now yet either. You will be able to, but at the moment, I think first they're going to be going out to sort of partners like hotel chains and stuff first. And then once, the, once we're making more of them, they'll be available for general sale. And at that stage, we'll have to decide whether, whether the SDK is actually available or not. I mean, to be honest, we had a hard time getting it even within MSR for a while. So, um, so it's, it's, it's not available publicly yet, but I, I would expect it to be at some stage. Any more questions? Okay, thank you very much again. Thanks. Okay. Our last speaker for today's session is Professor Maya Panik from Imperial College London. She'll be talking about uh, the multimedia and multimodal interfaces. I'm sure this is uh, a very exciting topic. <laughs> Over to you. Okay. Good afternoon. Um, well, my talk will be about user interfaces. So it seems that it is something completely else than what we heard up to now. But in principle, um, I will try to explain what is the link to what you heard uh, up to now. Uh, in this talk, I would like to make actually two points. The main point will be that um, the future of user interfaces um, are linked to actually being able to understand human behavior. So the claim is that if we want to have the interfaces being able to deal with next generation computing, we need to come up with human behavior centered design for interfaces. The second point that I want to make is uh, actually that we are quite far away from achieving this kind of human behavior centered inter interfaces. In principle, everything is about how far we are uh, with machine understanding of human behavior. Well, so the, the, you will see a lot of the talk is about current state of the art in machine understanding and analysis 
of human behavior. However, all of the techniques that I'm explaining, you can in fact use also for automatic annotation and automatic retrieval of videos, for example, or audiovisual material. The first question that you may ask me, why I am interested in human behavior? Well, if we think about, and then, of course, in combination with computing, if you think about the current state of affairs in computing, we can easily see that we are using computers for almost anything we are doing nowadays. We are communicating with each other by using computers. We are educating ourselves and others by using computers. We are driving cars with on-board computers. And we are even entertaining ourselves by using computers. In fact, um, what is the widely accepted prediction for the future of computing is that the computer devices will um, move to the background, that they will actually get embedded into our environment, into our tables, our chairs, or our walls. And hence, that the future of computing will be about building anticipatory user interfaces that are capable of sensing, understanding, and then adapting to human behavior, including human user preferences, uh, intentions, as well as, as mood, such as, for example, being joyful or being tired or being bored or being attentive or wanting to know something else about certain thing in our environment. However, if we think further about what is the current state in human-computer interfaces, it is very easy to conclude that current interfaces, which are based on keyboards and mice, and kind of this direct manipulation uh, design where uh, actually no attention is paid to the context in which the interaction takes place. So absolutely no attention is paid who the user is, what the task of that user is, and not, not to mention how the user feels, will simply not be sufficient for this kind of next-generation interfaces where the computer devices will be embedded into environment and there will be no mice and keyboard to interact with. So if we want to achieve this future kind of interfaces, then we need to move from regular interface devices and uh, interaction modes to include uh, the modalities which are natural to humans. And this is actually the visual modality, audio modality, and haptic modality. There are also other modalities that we use to sense uh, the environment, but uh, nonetheless, uh, using, for example, the sense of smell uh, is not something which we do all the time. So, and it's probably not that useful for computing, so that's why I do not mention it. Nonetheless, this is just my personal opinion. There are people who actually believe that uh, the interfaces can be built uh, based on this kind of modalities as well. Well, these future interfaces um, need to be context sensitive. As we said, it's very important who the user is and what the current task of the user is and how the user feels. 
And then what we want is to build context-sensitive response, response, right? So, um, in principle, if I look uh, at this bottle, um, and this is uh, something in my environment that I want to manipulate and say, I, I really don't understand why this bottle has to has, have a blue uh, top, right? So, I am giving with my face uh, a sign that I do not like that it is blue or that it has some blue top, right? Uh, and if we, we have this bottle which will be interactive, which is actually something that MIT is working at, uh, we will have the bottle simply change its top uh, and become another color, maybe the color which is of my preference, which may be black. Um, fine. However, if you think about what does that mean, understanding user behavior, um, we can... Um, talk in principle uh, about the findings that psychologists gave us. So when we talk about user behavior, we talk in principle about at least two kinds of completely different signals. One are affective signals, so emotions. Uh, we can talk about uh, so-called basic emotions like uh, being uh, happy or being angry or being sad. We can talk about attitude um, in the sense uh, being willing or being uh, attentive, uh, or uh, about cognitive states uh, where also fatigue comes in. Uh, and we can talk about social signals. This comes mostly when we are interacting, in principle, with other humans. So things like uh, head nods uh, will be so-called regulators, where you regulate uh, uh, your speech. So a gaze, for example, exchange, and kinds of nods are regulators. Illustrators, on the other side, are any gestures that illustrate your point. So, for example, saying this is really large, whatever, uh, this gesture will be actually an illustrator. Emblems are cultural specific signals, so things like this is really good, I really like this, these are the, uh, the emblems that we use. Also, Vink is uh, another emblem. Manipulators on the other side are usually not conscious signals. Those are the signals that we use to, for example, by scratching ourselves or wiping our lips, these are the kind of manipulators. Um, when it comes what can be used to understand these signals, we can discuss actually all three uh, main modalities. Uh, those are visual, auditory, and tactile modalities. However, um, it is known that faces are the most important um, modality when it comes to behavior understanding. Although um, you may say, okay, but we are using speech for everything. Nonetheless, when it comes to behavior understanding in terms of affective signals and in terms of social signals, it seems that speech is not reliable. And the main reason for that is that people use different words to express exactly the same thing. So even think only about not other cultures or your colleagues, but think about your parents or people with whom you grew up. And then the difference is how your mother and your father will express the very same thing. They will use different words. They will use different expressions. Well, the face seems to be very important. Uh, the problem with tactile is that we cannot feel um, uh, for example, blood pressure or respiration or 
pulse of the other person uh, all the time. We may see blushing, which is actually the temperature change in the face, um, but uh, um, this is again visually we see somebody blushing, but we do not actually feel it. We don't go and touch that person. Usually we don't do that. Um, when it comes to context dependence, why now it comes again about context, why it is so important? Because in principle, uh, the very same signal can mean something completely else depending on the context. So think about the phone. So if I do this and I am the speaker, you may say, okay, she wants to emphasize that this is really important. However, if I am the listener and do this phone, I may want to express that I didn't understand the point which is discussed. On the other side, if I am outside and I there is a bright day and I do this, this may be just a simple manipulator to shield my eyes from the bright light. However, if I do the same expression by seeing somebody passing by, it may be that I don't really like that person. So this is an unconscious one. However, if I talk to my friend and do the same phone, it might be, why do you tease me about this? So in principle, it is very important to understand that each and every um, behavioral signal that we express may be interpreted differently depending on the context in which we express that signal. So if we want to achieve machine understanding of human behavior, at least what we should try is to understand the visual modalities, which is facial expressions, body gestures, posture, and some audio modalities. When I say audio modality, it, I do not uh, mean speech. I mean vocal intonation. So, for example, how fast I, sp I speak, how uh, slow am I in responding your question, which may be typical for reluctant, being reluctant. But also I think about vocal outbursts, which are very interesting. Vocal outbursts are things like laughter or yawning or, say, or saying those are so-called non-linguistic vocal outbursts. And you have linguistic vocal outbursts, which are things like or things like <laughs> So these kind of things are uh, things which say a lot about how people feel and about um, their behavioral patterns, actually. Uh, further, as I said, we should be able to um, understand the context and uh, then to interpret these signals, behavioral signals, um, visual and audio signals in terms of the context in order to come to an idea of what the human behavior interpretation can be. Well, how far are we? In principle, uh, quite a lot, uh, the research has pushed the, the boundaries quite a lot, especially when it comes to visual processing, and there I mean about facial expression analysis and body gesture analysis. In fact, if we think about uh, uh, face detection and tracking, um, there are quite a lot uh, of new uh, methodologies proposed. Uh, this one that you are seeing is based on the color, but there are other uh, methods, including the very known and widely used Viola and Joe's face detector, um, which uses uh, so-called hard features, it doesn't matter. Um, but in principle, uh, quite a lot uh, um, of uh, advances uh, have been booked here. 
Um, this is mostly, of course, because it, uh, this kind of research is driven by security uh, issues. Uh, however, uh, the limitation of the current phase detectors and current phase trackers is that, in principle, tilted phases are um, also very sudden movements, uh, kind of occlusions, um, very dynamic background, moving of the cameras are not really, really solved very well. Um, also, in principle, uh, uh, the tilted uh, movements are currently one of the biggest problems. Um, also, uh, when it comes to the tracking of facial expressions, um, the, um, the state of the art is, uh, is quite advanced. Um, previously, most of the methods were using optical flow, but as you know, uh, optical flow has quite some limitations in terms that once when they come into so-called local minima, they're very difficult, actually quite impossible to get out of that local minima. Um, and uh, um, sequential state estimation became quite popular, uh, especially Kalman filtering and particle filtering. Um, the trackers that you are seeing here are uh, both based on uh, particle filtering. Uh, the left one is based, uh, is called so-called auxiliary particle filtering, and it's a method proposed by Pete and Shepard. The right one is the particle filtering uh, with factorized likelihoods proposed uh, by Ioannis Patras and myself. Nonetheless, uh, most of, uh, of uh, current trackers have huge problems also with very sudden movements, with uh, occlusions, uh, and these things uh, need to be solved. Facial expression recognition, usually there are two main, say, approaches to facial expression recognition. One uh, we can call geometric uh, feature-based approach, where you do first uh, phase detection. Uh, after that, you detect certain features, like, for example, characteristic facial points, like corners of the mouth and corners of the eyebrows and so on, or the shapes of the, of the facial um, um, elements like the whole, the shape of the whole mouth, the shape of the whole eye, the shape of the whole eyebrow. Then you track those shapes or those characteristic features and then you interpret those. The other methodology will be appearance-based methodology where once you detect uh, the whole face, you simply process everything what is within the face region. So the very known methodologies for that are based, for example, on uh, Gabor wavelets. Interpretation currently, say, unfortunately, uh, maybe 80 or 85% of the metho methods existing in the current literature are, ba are based on the detection of so-called six basic emotions. These emotions are illustrated uh, above, and the problem with this is that, in principle, if you think about realistic applications, these prototypic expressions of emotions do not occur in the real life or very rarely. So actually, if you want to pull and use this technology in uh, real-world applications, then uh, methods that can recognize six basic emotions are actually completely inapplicable. 
So, uh, in order to address uh, this limitation, uh, a number of researchers, uh, including uh, my own uh, research group, uh, started the research into the recognition of so-called facial muscle actions. Those are actually, there are different methods uh, describing the facial muscles, and what we use are so-called action units, which are proposed by Paul Ekman and other psychologists, and the... um, really good point uh, of uh, this approach is that, in fact, each and every facial expression that the human face can express can be described in terms of those action units. And there are 27 basic action units. So 27 action units occur in our daily life. So in principle, by using 27 action units, you can describe something like 7,000 to 10,000 expressions that our face can display. So the reduction of the dimensionality is huge. And nonetheless, okay, uh, the methodology uh, is usually based on uh, machine learning techniques. Um, So uh, in principle, you use the movements of the points or um, uh, say the whole holistic appearance-based representation of the face to learn um, uh, those which are characteristic for certain classes or certain action units, and for that you use either Bayesian le- machine learning or statistical methods, uh, also ensemble learning, uh, this is boosting algorithms, are very, very popular currently for this purpose. Um, nonetheless, uh, still uh, a lot of things should be done because, in fact, facial expression recognition depends hugely on face detection and on the accuracy of the tracking. So the moment these two fail, also the facial expression will fail. Facial expression recognition. When it comes to uh, body... to body tracking... um, There are quite some trackers uh, uh, which are proposed lately in uh, the literature. And uh, uh, the two trackers that you are seeing here are based, again, on sequential state estimation. Um, The left one is, again, uh, the auxiliary particle filtering. Uh, It's applied on um, pretty bad uh, uh, resolution. This is um, uh, the scene from the great dictator of Charlie Chaplin. And as you see, it works pretty pretty well. Um, the other one um, is also auxiliary particle filtering, but uh, biased for the tracking of uh, the face and hence in color images. Nonetheless, both of these uh, have been used uh, in my own lab. But uh, in principle, uh, these kind of methods uh, still have huge problems with the occlusions, with the definition of a very good uh, uh, model that you will track. So if uh, you have uh, blurred uh, uh, images and very fast motions, it doesn't really work. Once you have, now, there are different approaches to body gesture recognition, uh, but um, uh, this one, what I'm showing here, is just uh, something very novel. This is developed in my own lab, and uh, it's not uh, something which is standard. In principle, the standard techniques uh, use uh, tracking or use uh, uh, model-based tracking. So you have this uh, kind of half cylinders uh, that the whole body is represented with, and then you track, actually those cylinders as the hands and the legs. 
uh, this kind of representation is something else. Uh, we try here to detect a number of spatiotemporal saliences. So we assume that the background is static, so only things which are moving are uh, the foreground. Uh, we then uh, extract those uh, spatiotemporal uh, salient points, we connect them, and we represent uh, the connected spatiotemporal saliences in time as the volume. And then each gesture has its own volumetric representation, which we try to recognize as a certain gesture. Uh, a very, very, very good survey paper on body motion uh, recognition and body motion tracking has been given uh, by Ronald Pope of University of Twente. It's excellent if you can take a look of it. It's very new from 2007. Um, uh, when it comes to audio-based human sensing, um, in principle, what people do is uh, uh, they try to extract certain audio profiles and they try to extract things like so-called prosody, which is pitch and intensity and uh, the derivatives uh, of those and so on. Uh, the point is that uh, in psychology, in the research of psychology, it has been shown that uh, uh, there the six basic emotions can be represented in terms of these prosodic features. Of course, they came to an agreement for approximately four different emotions. For the rest, they didn't come to an agreement. So it, it seems that these prosodic uh, features are not enough. In fact, if we think about what is going currently on in the research, it seems again that it is very important to use spectral features, such as, for example, male frequency spectral sepstral features, uh, uh, but also to use, if possible, um, some information about the context, content of the speech. So this is exactly in the contradiction of the previous statement, which I said, where the speech is not of importance. However, it seems that it is a huge problem of how you will extract the words and then exactly in those uh, words that you are interested in to see what is the intonation of those words. So this is a very, very heavy problem, uh, especially when it comes to natural language, um, where we have different accents, where we speak uh, uh, maybe unclearly, where we talk very fast, and so on and so forth. Um, some new uh, research findings also show that, as I said, uh, things like uh, uh, vocal outbursts, like laughter and yawning and no, uh, non-linguistic uh, vocal outbursts, seem to be very important for human behavior. Uh, in fact, we use laughter for almost everything we do. So if we are embarrassed, we laugh. If we are happy, we laugh. If we want to say that we agree with somebody, we'll smile and we laugh. If we are iron ironic, we laugh again. So in principle, laughter seems to be one of the most important cues that we should recognize. So um, this is some sound, something like this. <laughs> so the point is that this <laughs> ha ha ha, there is something which is, say, repetitive profile, which we may try to recognize. And there are currently a couple of works which are based only on audio. What we tried currently to do, and we just uh, uh, got uh, a publication on it, is to do an audiovisual approach for laughter detection. 
so, uh, and it seems to be working uh, quite well. I need to be fast. Um, fine. Uh, the, the whole um, uh, affect recognition, uh, no matter what you use, if you use body, if you use face, if you use audio, is currently based mostly on six basic emotions. There are just very few uh, attempts to recognize different emotions, like, for example, uh, interest or confusion. Uh, for a good, very good survey, uh, look at the survey of uh, Zheng, uh, Pantic, and Huang. Uh, it has been now accepted for publication in Patronalism and Machine Intelligence, IEEE Transactions. Um, things like um, person-dependent display of any emotion and uh, uh, spontaneous versus posed uh, detection has been just research. In fact, when it comes to distinguishing whether something is spontaneous or posed, it's very important, for example, for deception detection, has been um, investigated only quite recently. In fact, there are four, in total, four different works, three of which uh, are coming from my own lab, and the fourth one is coming from University of California, San Diego. Um, when it comes to social signals, again, like uh, uh, Alex Penfant from MIT did some uh, work in 2003 and 2005, uh, and EDAP in Switzerland did some additional work in terms of um, level of interest and the role of participants in meetings, and they did uh, this based on voice, hand, and head gestures. They, they have quite good results, but uh, besides that, uh, it is a very, very limited research in this field, and it seems to be extremely important if we want to build things like social networks, if we want to, to analyze actually and annotate uh, the videos in terms of who is leading the discussion and uh, who is somebody who has uh, a higher standing in a certain circle, uh, who is the center of, of focus of, uh, of interest, and so on. Um, overall, context, first of all, most of the methods uh, are based on only one modality, usually only visual modality. Uh, there are uh, just few works, uh, say, in order of 20 or maybe 30 different works proposed on audiovisual uh, behavior analysis. So this is really not enough research to uh, topic. Uh, context is not addressed at all. Temporal analysis, which seems to be of an extreme importance uh, because uh, uh, especially for spontaneous versus posed, uh, which is again important if you want to realize, for example, irony, because when we smile ironic, this is definitely not the same as when we smile uh, in joy. When we smile in irony, the smiles are asymmetric. If we smile a polite smile, what we do, we smile very fast. So this is when you got uh, into an uh, air airplane, and what the stewardess does is immediately it spots here, right? But when you just saw a very funny video or uh, uh, you heard a joke, what you do, it, it, it takes some time that you understand the joke. So actually, the smile is just gradual, and then it goes also back in a, in a slow pace. So this is a huge difference between being polite and being really joyful. So temporal analysis is extremely uh, important, however, like a really very small amount of works. Uh, Kiang Yi is one of the guys who did uh, something in temporal analysis and correlation of different 
behavioral signals, temporal correlation. So further fusion of modalities. There is so little uh, work done on audiovisual uh, analysis of human behavior and uh, actually multimedia data. Uh, so on which level this fusion should be done is not clear. Should this be done in some uh, mid-level, this is very similar to how humans do, or should we go to some higher level, like a decision level, but on the other side, this is so far away from how humans do, and humans seem to be very good in audiovisual data fusion. Nonetheless, we can again agree, yes, but computers will be used in a completely different way, so why we should uh, follow the human uh, human uh, model? So this is, this, is, this is really like an open discussion, how the multimodal data fusion should be done. Uh, further, how this should be done now when we want to do uh, the temporal analysis, because you have a temporal analysis on, say, one second blink, or on a, in a, a temporal analysis on the duration of one word, one sentence, one hour, while I see, what is a mood? Mood is something which uh, uh, takes quite a long, a, long, a long time to change or to recognize. So how do you fuse modalities in time and on different temporal levels. This is absolutely not investigated enough. Uh, context. Again, it seems that humans fuse different modalities depending on the context. We, when we are in a very loud environment, what we do is we simply look at somebody's mouth and we lip read uh, uh, because we cannot hear, right? Um, also, when we didn't hear, what we do, we take a second look. We pay attention more. So we recalibrate this fusion depending on the context. This is, again, something which is not done by machines. And finally, should we actually um, have learning, which is current, um, very popular path. Uh, so you have, those are data-driven methods, you have a huge amount of data, and then you uh, let the machine learning technique on it, and it learns everything, and that's about it. However, the photos or whatever, the chairs cannot be, cannot be recognized. So is that the best way, or should we use completely expert-driven way? However, do the expert know exactly everything what, uh, what the machine should learn? Or should we use something in the middle? Thank you very much for your attention. Any questions? When you mentioned that the temporal processing has not been sort of well studied, but the, what I may have missed some point because uh, I saw people to do this uh, expression recognition all based on like uh, hidden micro models, etc. This sort of or model the so temporal changes of the face features of or appearance changes. Then based on that make a decision whether this, what kind of expression or what kind of... Exactly. Hidden Markov models are used usually just as a temporal filter. In principle, what you do, you just uh, have frame-by-frame -frame analysis of facial expressions, then you put hidden Markov models above that, and everything, all the peaks which are wrongly recognized as a certain expression, got smoothed. So actually, this is the most often way of using hidden Markov models. The only um, work currently in facial expression recognition which truly does uh, the analysis of temporal correlations in terms, for example, when I smile, 
in a polite way, it should be a fast smile and it should be uh, a very high apex smile and all of those are, uh, uh, there are several things, um, are so-called action units. Those are those facial muscle actions. So you, what you want is a short action unit 12, which is a smile, and you want large action unit 26, which is open if, of the mouth, and you want that these two are correlated for your polite smile versus your spontaneous smile, where you will have also the smiling of the eyes. This kind of work was, has been done only by Ki and Yi up to now. But I think that because the head micromodels, you can have a hierarchical head micromodels. That is correct. Because then you, the data you collected, actually, when you mentioned those phenomena you just, just described, but you can collect through data. The smiles, people smile faster or slowly, all this, this data, the information will be sort of embedded into this this data? Uh, uh, exactly. The problem, there are many problems. One of the problems is that we do not have enough uh, data on spontaneous uh, uh, human behavior. So that's one of the problems. Uh, there are several databases which have been uh, issued uh, currently, or say maybe in the last two or three years. Nonetheless, the problem with this uh, data is that uh, uh, all of the clips are very short and nothing is annotated. So if you just throw, you know, machine learning technique on it, it will simply learn nothing. So you have first to annotate uh, this data correctly and then use it to learn further. So that's one of the problems, right? The coupled hidden Markov models have been used. They have been actually used only for audiovisual uh, fusion up to now, and it's called model-level fusion, but they have not been used for uh, temporal correlation of different behavioral signals, which is something we'll be interested to, I will be interested to investigate, and I think many other people as well. Okay, thank you. Hi, thanks for your talk. My name's Ed Schofield. I'm from Immense. Um, I um, um, I find computers most pleasant to use when they're uh, reliable and totally predictable. Uh, you spoke in favor of context dependence in interfaces. Um, do you have any guidelines or uh, ideas for how that context dependence can be built into interfaces without making them infuriating? Mm -hmm. Uh, this is a very, very nice uh, comment. Thank you for it. Uh, the point is that it seems uh, you're an expert user. So expert users hate computers that can do something that they do not understand. So for you, anything what is adaptive or context adaptive or uh, uh, U adaptive uh, will be actually something which will, you will not like that. However, uh, we tested um, one of our adaptive interfaces on elderly users. They loved it. And the reason why they loved it is because once they were like, okay, what should I do? The, the interface gave them some tips, and they loved it. However, when we did this with Expertude, they hated it because it was actually slowing them down. So uh, it seems that there is a huge difference in uh, the knowledge and the computing skills of the user uh, versus whether a context-dependent or adaptive interface is useful for them or not. Thanks very much. Uh, there's some work which is uh, um, 
somewhat related to what you're doing, but in another field, like, for example, if you go into social or political sciences, then there are some projects which uh, try to investigate how and what kind of emotions you produce if you use certain pictures or if you do a movie or a shot from a specific angle or this kind of thing, right? So the goal there is not to kind of produce any kind of interfaces, but just to analyze how, how uh, certain styles and pictures are used. Uh, do you see any or what kind of connections do you see from that work to your own work? This is a direct application of the things uh, that uh, has been uh, the things that we develop. So, in principle, uh, application of um, uh, understanding of human behavior can be directly, for example, whether a person, whether your user is satisfied with the retrieval that you did. So you can use the feedback given by the face of the user to see whether he or she didn't like what you, what you retrieved. Second thing is to um, have this kind, what you mentioned, uh, marketing kind of, uh, uh, of studies. This can be done also based on the emotions that the users show on a certain product. Um, another one uh, will be, um, I don't know exactly, on, um, in, uh, say, negotiation, what is interesting, Alex Pentland did these kind of things. It seems that actually if you can analyze a so-called mirroring effect or chameleon effect, what's going on in the chameleon effect is that when people want to come into an agreement, they start doing the exactly same movements, even using the same words. So uh, it seems that if this effect occurs, so if the people show uh, this uh, similar behavior, then there is a much higher probability that they will agree in their negotiation. So this can be used also for simply monitoring people while negotiating to predict the outcome of their negotiation. This is exactly what Alex Pentland did, and it seems to be working. So... Um, the field is huge, so these are just, you can see these kind of methods as, in fact, a set of tools that you can use in many different fields, including uh, automatic annotation and analysis of uh, uh, multimodal and multimedial data. Yes. So, um, towards the end of your talk, you were, you were sort of saying, well, we don't know if people really if we really want to recognize the affective state and change things, because maybe that interface isn't quite the right model, given that we don't have natural language interfaces for computers, for example, and yet we speak all the time, and people find it's just not the, a good model. And I wouldn't be surprised if it ends up being a sort of... Um, in a, in some in-between level where the person has to adapt how they express their emotion to get the system to recognize something, but it's an adaptation that's, adaptation that's not a big deal for us, but it makes things so much easier to recognize and so much easier to react to. So going all the way to recognizing sort of subtle, impossible to detect expressions might be unnecessary if you can get people to sort of nod their head vigorously as opposed to just nod it barely, mm -hmm. and then you get the right effects and it's easy to detect. Um, thousand things. 
<laughs> so first thing, what I meant is that it seems that we do not simply know whether the model that human brain uses to fuse different information is exactly the same model that we should try to have and model inside of the computer. This is what I said. However, from there you got, you, you went further and you said, uh, maybe we should simply expect the user to uh, adapt to computers or to machines as user always does. Um, I agree. I think that we are humans are extremely adaptable creatures. So one way or the other, what the, okay, a great example, iPod. Ask how many people like iPod. Everybody likes iPod. Is that a, a, a good interface? Is that a logical interface? In fact, how you go to the left and to the right? You don't click left and you don't click right. You make circles. Is that logical? It's not logical. It's not useful at all. Nonetheless, people simply adapt to that. So I really believe that if we will build the interfaces which will be affect-based, people will simply adapt to that and start making smiles just to, to push their computers, do something. But the real question is, is that truly useful for that user, right? So, and that I cannot answer. I don't think this is what we should do. So that's why I'm pushing so much in terms of do not use post data, use spontaneous data. What do you really want? Is really this subtlety. If you cannot achieve, uh, if you cannot have the users that are really spontaneous in front of their computers, but are actually learning just like they learn to move the mouse and coordinate the click of the mouse movement and the movement uh, of the cursor in the, in the screen, uh, why they should use just another modality like smiles or face. I don't think that, that that's actually the good point. I, I, don't, I don't have the answer on that. Maybe it is, but I think this is not what I would like to see. What I would like to see is that the users, that we come to that point that the computers really try and succeed in adapting to the user and not otherwise around. Maybe it's at the least. <laughs> okay, any more questions? Yeah, right, uh, I just want to comment on that uh, discussion there. Um, POM, this POM, uh, POM pilot language is an example where people learn a new way of writing because it yeah. simply worked better. Yeah. Um, and also like shortcuts, uh, commands in Emacs and people like programmers that use these commands are very, very efficient. So I think those are examples of that we will see probably both. I mean, I, I don't think it's going to be one way or the other. It's probably going to be a mix of, of what you say, of what you say, or what he says. Okay. Um, this is a very, again, very interesting thing. Short keyboards or simply Dvorak keyboards. Much faster, much better. Who use them? Nobody. And why is because people have to learn and to spend some time learning it, right? So can we compare that with human behavior? I don't think so. Human behavior is easier for, hu for humans. In, in sense, if you have to start uh, uh, winking on one eye in order to, to have your mouse clicking on the left side, you will do it all the time, right? But because it's easier, for, for, that's not a problem for us to do. 
But is that what my question is actually, is this really what we want? Or is it that we want to, to have the user, like my mother, got completely confused in front of computer, and then the computer helps her? Because computer understands that she is simply confused. She has no idea which button she should, uh, she should press, right? This is what I would like to achieve. I, 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 again, I'm saying maybe I'm really completely realistic. Maybe this will never be. Maybe the truth is somewhere in between that the user should try to adapt and we should try to understand this, how they adapt. I, I, I really don't know. But I would like them to be as spontaneous as possible because in that way we may reach this universal accessibility and uh, universal usability which is preached by, by Ben Schneiderman and others that it is really important and many, many other uh, services reached it and we in computing still didn't reach it because we expect the users all the time to adapt to the devices that we provide them with. So. Great. Okay. Thank you very much. To be honest, uh, and uh, I, I think you're right, the visual information is uh, very important to the human behavior understanding. But I also think the speech is important as well. Mm. So the reason why the speech cannot be widely applied to the uh, human behavior understanding, I think, could be the uh, speech recognition itself or speech understanding. Mm. So you know, and uh, by now, the, uh, the aut automatic speech recognizer cannot get the better the, uh, results. So, but uh, I did experiments like uh, even if the word error rate is about the 40% or the 50%, but we still can get the better the, you know, understanding. For example, the classification rate could be the 80%. Mm -hmm. So, but I think the real reason could be the, uh, for computer to, uh, it could be difficult for computer to understand our real meaning. Mm -hmm. So even if we can get the, the manual transcription or the you know, recognition results. So I think that it could be the reason why the speech cannot be applied to the multimodal system. But anyway, I, I still think the speech is important. Uh, I completely agree with you. In fact, uh, uh, this is then a misunderstanding. I didn't say that speech is not important. Uh, in fact, this is a, a point of, of quite a contradiction, you know, in the, in the psychological as well as in, uh, uh, say, automatic behavior analysis uh, community because, um, first of all, speech exists for two million years. We can understand each other without looking at each other, right? We have phones and we understand each other perfectly well. However, uh, it seems that when you are able to see somebody, uh, then you rely more on faces and on body than on speech. And the reason is that you will, even if you do not understand the language somebody is speaking, you can still guess whether that person is, is upset or confused or lost or sad or depressed or, uh, or maybe not. But uh, in principle, we do look for signals to understand how person is feeling, right? Because... This is something which we uh, learned socially that it is good to know how the other people feel because in that way we can fit better, right? Uh, however, 
speech is important, will stay important, and we should work on speech. So the multimodal interfaces must be based also on speech because whenever you, you when you point something, a, a very simple multimodal interface uh, instead of pointing, you want open this. You simply say your command, open this one, and you show what you want to open. This is like proposed in 1980, right? And this, I think, should remain to exist. The question is just how far you should use speech when it comes to this subtle behavior analysis like emotions or like social signals, right? So, and this is, again, divided because, as I said, it seems that the content of speech is important. However, they simply don't know how to put it in, inside of the model. For example, and uh, for the emotion uh, detection, if you uh, consider the the image itself, uh, uh, sometimes you can get a better result. However, if you combine the image and the, for example, pitch information, the two the information together, maybe you can get the great improvement. I just guess. Okay, so now you come to another topic. Uh, in, <laughs> indeed, uh, uh, single model um, analysis of behavior always results in lower recognition rates. Uh, the moment you, uh, you use multiple modalities, especially if those are audio and visual, the recognition rates uh, increase and then significantly, but really significantly, like uh, it is in tens of percents. So um, on the other side, uh, uh, when speech is added, this hugely depends on the quality of the speech recognizer, that's one thing, and on the uh, how connected are the words. So uh, the less uh, the words are connected, uh, the better the result because you can actually segment the words and use, in fact, uh, just the words which are of importance for your emotion recognition based on the dictionary. I mean, just the pitch itself, so the, not the word, recognize the word. Yes, so. that's a, co uh, a regular audio uh, uh, modality, which I say immediately when you combine it with, uh, with the video, it uh, results in better results. Thanks. Okay, is there any more questions? <laughs> if there's no more questions, I'll suck my eye. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.